because what we are going through and what we are having to deal with really is a situation that has existed really for a long, long time. And there has been failure throughout history and the subject that I am about to get into. <clears throat> and we, of all people, have an opportunity to change history, to turn things around. Now, through the feast, we were talking about the meaning of marriage and the family in terms of the plan of God, the plan of salvation, and I've continued that somewhat. Uh, we talked about the bride and preparing ourselves, I think, last time. I want to take it one step further today, and let's begin at the end rather than the beginning on this today, to see something here in Revelation 19 to set the stage for what we will discuss today. Revelation 19, and here in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, we talk about preparing the bride, and we talk about the bride of Christ quite a bit, but here he transitions this to the wife. Not just bride, but then what happens after you are a bride. Then you become a wife. And that is what we are working on right here. Let's go on to chapter 21, and here in verse 19. 20, oh, I'm in 20. No. No, I wrote that down. Did I do it wrong? 219. 19.7 is the first one I had. I'm sorry. Uh, Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And that's the one I read, wasn't it? 21.9. Let me see. What did I do here? Oh, okay, this is the one I want. 21.9. There came to me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, and then he continues, the lamb's wife. So she which had been bride is transitioned here to become the wife as well. So today I want to talk not just about preparing ourselves to be a bride, but what it means to be a wife and mother, because we are to reign with Christ a thousand years on the earth, and as the wife of Christ, that puts us in position to serve him, A, as wife, and B, as the mother of children. So we are in the process of learning to be a wife and a mother. Now we see this, and I won't go back there today for sake of time, we've been there before, but in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, he made them husband and wife and told them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, that they were to have children, that they were to be a family unit and work together to rear children according to the ways of God. Now, they failed miserably in many respects at that, did not do too well, 
One of the sons became a murderer, and there's not much good said about their specific children. And in fact, that system that they gave birth to in that sense devolved into sin so great that only a thousand years later, roughly, God destroyed mankind from off the face of the earth, save eight people. And he saved a family unit, if you stop to think about it. Uh, Noah and his sons and their wives, and Noah's wife, but only eight people to begin the situation over again. It had not worked out too well. Now then, what happened after that? We can go down through history. I want to start this in Exodus 20. Here we have the Ten Commandments. And in verse 12 it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God gives you. Now this is the first commandment with a specific promise uh, put into it, as Paul says in the New Testament, I forget exactly where. But we are to honor our father and our mother. They are those pyramid, not pyramids, but the pillars is the word, of the family, the father and the mother. And we have our father in heaven. We have our elder brother, who is also cast in the role of husband-to-be. And he wants a wife that can be a proper wife and mother to his children in a peaceful, loving community. He does not want to see strife within the family and war and malcontent such as we see in the world today in the family of people that are inhabiting the earth. There is war and there is rumor of war. There is trouble at every hand. If you go out and look at the people in this world, their marriages are breaking up. They're in trouble in many, many different ways. Their children are disobedient and rebellious and self-seeking and self-centered because they've been spoiled rotten by parents who have centered on them too much. And there are all kinds of marital and child-rearing problems in this world. It is not a happy world, and you don't have to talk to many people out in the world to find out that their lives are in turmoil. You think we have problems. Well, we do, but compared to what's going on out there, this is an island of peace and safety by comparison. We are seeking to do God's will and His way. And therefore, things are better. Now, <clears throat> we have opportunity to be the very wife of Christ and the mother of his children and to raise a godly family over the whole face of the earth. What an incredible opportunity there is before us. Now, if we get bogged down and our little problems, and our little snitzes, and our little petty difficulties with one another. It is easy to lose sight of why we're here, what our purpose is, and what we need to be doing. 
and that is easy to have happen. To even get in selfish attitudes. I'm going to go at the beginning of this. Maybe it doesn't quite fit the context, but it's been on my mind for some time. And I want to go to 1 Corinthians 7. I may wind up the whole sermon here. I don't know. It just, it just hit me. I thought about it a little bit earlier, and I thought, well, that doesn't really completely fit here. But considering the circumstance that we face, the opportunity that is ahead of us, it is without vision that people perish. If they have a vision of where they're headed and what they need to be doing and where their focus needs to be, it helps them a great deal. So I want to show here in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, some things that Paul had to say to the church. Now bear in mind the context that he thought that the end of the age was upon them. Now Christ allowed him to think that, and even through three and a half years of teaching in the desert where they were together for three and one half years, Paul must have asked many, many questions. But of the questions he asked and the conversations they had and the teaching that he received, somehow Christ reserved to himself and did not tell Paul that there were about 2,000 years of time left. Is that cruel and unusual? We might think so. But Paul was to live as if the end was there. The church was to be motivated as if the end were there because that early New Testament church was really only given about 70 years, right? from the roughly 1930 to the turn of the century when John was writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. The church lasted about 70 years and then very quickly just disappeared and was nowhere to be found after John's death. Now we too have been given roughly 70 years here at the end from the time God first raised up a man to begin teaching the truth. We're a little bit over the 70 years now from the time the church was at least incorporated in 33, but we were allowed to come here in 2003, exactly 70 years later. Now there's a period of time of adjustment and change. There is a furtherance of the work of the end-time church that must now be completed. So that church that God raised up at the end, had essentially disappeared by 2003. <coughs> there are still groups around who are sort of keeping the truth. Most are not growing. And even the biggest right now is in the process of dividing and splintering again. This is what we have been saying all along would happen, not because we're bright, but because that's what the Scripture says will happen. Needless to say, things were not right in the church, <clears throat> and it was blown apart. And now something else has to happen. Now, where should our focus be? This chapter talks about men and women in marriage. It talks about uh, those who might be a part of the church and their mate is not, the unconverted, and how that is to be handled. I will not go through all of that at this moment, but 
Uh, it says that if the unbelieving depart, verse 15, let him depart, a brother or a sister is not bound in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So God put us here to have happy marriages, but he takes responsibility if he only calls one member of the marriage. And he says if the other mate, be it male or female, does not let you serve God in peace and do the things for and with God that you wish, know, and need to do, uh, and let you do it in peace, then if that marriage breaks, God takes the responsibility. And though the opportunity for divorce and remarriage is very, very limited in the Bible, Paul said, and God backed up by making it Scripture, that under those circumstances, he is the one who only called one mate. And if that other mate then does not allow you to live and worship God in peace, then you do have a right to depart or have them depart and not be bound in that case. In other words, what is being emphasized here is that serving God and doing the things he wishes are far more important than a physical marriage. The marriage of the Lamb, of which we are talking, and being his wife and the mother of his children, is a high spiritual calling. And it transcends a physical marriage if that marriage cannot be conducted serving God in peace. <clears throat> so he is putting the spiritual marriage ahead of physical marriage here. God has that right. Verse 16, For what know you, O wife, whether you shall save your husband? Or how know you, O man, whether you shall save your wife? We might try, but how do we know that that will be a success? You know, you might fight it and try to help them see. You might argue with them. He says they might be won by conduct, not by talk, but possibly by your conduct would be the only way. But as God has distributed every man, as the Eternal has called everyone, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. Now he's making an administrative decision here that God backs up and put in Scripture, which is now holy. Now what is he saying here? <clears throat> is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That's an impossibility. So he's saying, however you were called, remain that way. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. It's a physical thing. It had some meaning as a physical operation in the past, but he says in terms of spirituality, it means nothing. There has been a debate over the years in the church and among the Jews, well, is circumcision necessary or not necessary? Paul says here it's inconsequential. It means nothing. What does then? But the keeping of the commandments of God. So arguments about circumcision are neither here nor there. They mean nothing. It is nothing. It doesn't matter one way or the other. The keeping of the commandments of God is what is important. To be circumcised of the heart, not the flesh, is the important part, as Paul put it in another place. 
Let every man abide in the same calling, calling wherein he was called. Now, the subject of this chapter is marriage, right? That will become even more abundantly clear as we move on. So he says, if you were called unmarried, we're going to see. He says it would be better to stay that way. If you're called married, it's better to stay that way. Circumcised or uncircumcised, married or unmarried, it is better to stay that way at the time of the end. We'll see what he, we'll see that confirmed in a moment. Are you called being a servant? Don't worry about it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. So there were people who came into the church who were actual slaves who belonged to other people at that time in the church. And he said, okay, you came into the church as a slave, stay that way. Don't worry about it. Now, if the opportunity comes that you could be released, that's okay too. <clears throat> but do not make that an emotional issue that holds you back from obeying God just because you happen to be in slavery. Putting God first, obeying Him, and serving Him is the key thing not whether you might physically be a slave or not. Now that is a hard concept for us to grasp at this point. There has been slavery all across the world since, well, almost since man's history began. And it has gone in every direction imaginable. There is a great deal of slavery on the earth today. You and I may not hear too much about it, but there's a lot of it that is still going on, and from continent to continent. Now, the only understanding we might have at all in our generation is what happened generations ago when slaves were sold to America and we brought people from Africa here as slaves. We still are suffering from the emotional fallout of that, as a society today. So slavery has very, very deep emotional issues and ties that come with it. So Paul was recognizing that, and there was slavery in that day, and even within the church. He addresses it in the book of Philippians, where somebody in the church owned a slave. And he was telling that owner how to treat his slave. He didn't say, free him. He said, treat him right. Now, verse 22, For he that is called in the eternal, being a servant or a slave, is the eternal's free man. Likewise also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price, be not you the servants of men, put God first. And he's talking overall here of the subject of marriage. And putting God first, even if it means the dissolution of your physical marriage, because you are not allowed to worship God without harassment and in peace. And he likens it, again, to physical slavery to other people. He says, you're, you're becoming a servant of Christ, so use 
Physical slavery, if you're in it, is an opportunity to understand how to be a servant to Christ. Don't fight it. Live with it. Learn from it. I read an article just recently that was uh, talking about the transportation board and the groping and the pictures they're taking now of people getting on airplanes. And this is in the realm of speculation, but it seems to have a root in Bible prophecy as well, because we well know, know from prophecy this land, this nation, is about to go into slavery, one-third of our people, the third that is not killed by famine, pestilence, and war, is going to go into physical slavery to other nations around the world. We're going to be shipped like cattle around the world as slaves. So what Paul is writing here is very germane to our situation today in the very next few coming months and years. And we need to pay attention. Hopefully we can escape the slavery that is coming. But this writer was speculating that the reason they're taking explicit images of people getting on the planes and why they want to put them through the electronic picture-taking process rather than the physical groping is so that they have pictures, especially of all our women in this nation, that they can possibly get pictures of. Because we owe the Chinese trillions of dollars. And the Chinese have millions more men than they do women. And they are looking desperately for wives for those men. Or at least those men are looking for wives. And the government went down to the one child per family uh, thing in communism in China. And therefore, most families want that one child to be male to help support them in their old age. So they do have the practice there of throwing many female babies when they're born into the river. They kill them as soon as they're born. Maybe not only in that method, but in various ways. They get rid of them until they have a male heir. So as a result of that many girl babies dying, they have many millions of men without wives who want wives. <clears throat> it is very possible they are making, and I know they are keeping, all records of all those photos taken at the airports. And with them, they have addresses, phone numbers, and can identify various ones. This author was speculating they may turn those files over to the Chinese as a part of what we owe the Chinese, and they can select wives from whomever they choose from those pictures. It's a scary prospect. Now, I don't know whether the guy is right or wrong, but it certainly does fit in with the prophecies about how our women will be ravished, many killed, and taken captive. The reward of soldiers throughout history has been to do with the women of a nation when they took it over as they so please and choose. And so frequently through history, those who are pregnant have their innards ripped out by sword because they are not as desirable to the soldiers, so they'll just kill them instead. And then they take those who are non-pregnant and attractive to them and do with them as they please. Now that is going to happen to the women of this nation. 
He says, you want to show it, I'll show it. We dress that way, and it's going to be shown to the peoples of the world. These things are coming. So if you think slavery is a dead issue, think again. It is on the horizon for America very soon. And preparations are being made to institute it. Whether the picture is taken at the airports or not is part of that. Is re really neither here nor there because Scripture says it's going to happen regardless of that. But this author at least indicated he thought that might be one reason they're doing it. So take it for what it's worth. But realize <clears throat> we are here to be servants of Christ and we are his slaves. And if we answer to any other slave master, ultimately, instead of to him, then we are in trouble. So he says, you're bought with a price, and he says we ought to obey God rather than man, doesn't he, in Acts 5.29? So he says here, you're slaves of Christ, put him first. So, then he talks about young people. Verse 25, oh, well, verse 24, he, he, uh, he says, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Widowed, divorced, whatever, stay that way. Now concerning virgins, our young people growing up, living single right now, I have no commandment of the eternal. He says, God hasn't given me specific instruction on this, but here's my advice. And God took this advice and passed it along in the form of Scripture, did he not? I have no commandment of the eternal, yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the eternal to be faithful. He says, I've obeyed God, I've served Christ, I was with him for three and a half years and learned a great deal, and I'm looking at the church at the time that looks like the end of the age, and it did to him, and Christ allowed him to labor under that. So he said, I give my judgment as one that obtains mercy of the eternal to be faithful, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. The present distress to he and the other apostles is that we are at the end of the age. Now, lo and behold, this was written in such a way that it would still be very alive and real at the end of the age, which now has come upon us. And here we are. Now, we have many who are frustrated about the unavailability of those that they could date and marry who are lonely, who are frustrated for many, many reasons because the single state is not the natural state and it is natural to marry, it is natural to have children, it is natural to be married. That is the way God set the system up. But there comes a time when the age is coming to a close. And should that be the emphasis? In other words, we are entering very tumultuous times, very difficult times, a time when this American empire is about to be blown apart. And the world is about to be blown apart, only to come together under Satan and a new world order 
of human beings who are working under and with Satan. And God's people, if they are worthy, or accounted worthy at least, are to be taken out and spared from that. So the present distress that Paul was speaking of, thinking it was coming upon the church in that day, is now here, here and now, and about to get much more distressful. Are you bound to a wife? <clears throat> Seek not to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Now this is advice from God. Remember Matthew 24, it says, Beware or woe to them that are pregnant or giving suck in those days when it's almost time for the church to run for the hills. We're very close to that time. Now, I'm not going to say nobody should have a baby from now on. I'm just saying that Christ himself, in that speech he gave the disciples, and this wasn't Paul, this was Christ himself, said, when that time comes, you'd be better off not to be pregnant or even nursing a child. And to be pregnant lasts about nine months, and to nurse a child can last two or three years. So there's a window there of about three, four years that we need to consider. Now, when does it start? I don't exactly know. But I do know the world is looking very, very shaky. Now, let's go on and see why Paul says these things. That's a pretty dire thing to say, is it not? Marriage is ordained of God. Marriage can be a wonderful thing. It pictures Christ in the church. It pictures the millennium and Christ and his wife ruling the children on the earth. So it has incredible overarching meaning in the plan of God. Nothing wrong with marriage and nothing wrong with children. It's God-ordained. He made it that way. But we're about to enter a time of great duress and stress and death and destruction. And he is giving this advice based on that scenario. And he makes a very dramatic statement. If you're bound to a wife, don't try to get out of it. If you don't have one, don't try to find one. But and if you marry, you have not sinned. Now he says it's better not to make marriage that big an issue. But if you do, you've not sinned. So it's not a sin to marry. It may just not be advisable for the near future. And if a virgin marry, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, if it happens, if they do, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. I'm hoping you don't go through that. I'm giving you the advice in the hopes that you don't get married because you're going to have a great deal of trouble. Now, he'll explain that some more. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. You are to live pretty much as if you weren't even married, if you have a mate. And they that weep as though they wept not. So marriage, he says, takes the back burner 
to the things that are going on. And if you have emotional difficulties and problems or whatever they might be, and you have cause and reason, normally speaking, to weep, to mourn over your circumstance, whether it be marriage or some other circumstance, be as though you wept not. In other words, don't worry so much about yourself and your feelings and your needs. Have your mind on something higher. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Our physical circumstance, whether it be bad and would make you want to cry, or good and make you want to rejoice, should not be our emphasis. They that buy as though they possess not. Materiality and being able to buy and to sell in this present distress that is coming upon us now is going to become unimportant by comparison to what we need to be thinking about. So it's not just marriage. It's every part of life that it's talking about here. And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passes away. The world is around us. It has its pulls. There are desires. There are bright lights and exciting things supposedly happening out there. There are temptations in the world. But he says, it's going to pass away. Why would you want to do the things the world is doing? Very shortly now, they won't be there to do it. They will be slaves or they will be dead. And if they become slaves, they will likely die in slavery. You'll put a sword after those who go into slavery. Why are they going into slavery? Because of lying, cheating, uh, because of adultery and fornication, because of drugs, because of abuse of alcohol and smoking and, and idolatry, worshiping everything but God, is why this nation is going into slavery. But it's the things that they are doing that God is going to destroy them for that we sometimes want to do with them or watch them do vicariously on Internet or uh, movie or music or whatever means we like to imbibe of what they are doing without doing it ourselves, if you will. It's passing away. He's saying, don't go there. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the eternal, how he may please the eternal. But he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. <coughs> what he's saying here is it's hard to be married and give your attention fully to God. It's easy to spend our time wanting to take care of our husband or our wife and be busy pleasing them rather than the overall goal of pleasing God ahead of that. Now he tells us in so many places we've read, has he not, that we're to turn to God with our whole heart. He's looking for wholeheartedness. And he says, when you do that, you will find me. Now, if we spend a lot of time 
thinking about and worrying about when will I get married or can I get married, then we are spending so much time in discouragement, doubt, fear, and frustration that we cut ourselves off from truly seeking God first, do we not? And if we are married and we spend so much time trying to please our mate, we don't devote enough time to turning to God, which is the primary focus right now. Now, it's not wrong to please our mate. It's not wrong to give them a certain amount of attention. That's what marriage is about. But the problem is, when God is so upset with the church that He blows it apart, and He wants our attention, He wants it above husband or wife, or the, po- the prospects or possibilities of husband or wife. He wants our full, unmitigated, uncompromised attention. It is the mind on self, my needs, my lacks, my hopes, my dreams, that creates the fear, the discouragement, the frustration, that we as singles or as marriage can get into. Now, I know I'm not making myself particularly uh, popular at the moment. That's okay. I'm giving you advice that came from the Father, through the Son, through Paul, for those who would be living in the end time. I want you to be the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, and the mother of his children. That is the highest calling there is or could ever be. And it is that lack of focus on our part that caused us to be where we are today as a scattered, splintered church. And he wants us to refocus. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, is giving advice that our young people might not like, but that is important for right now. Now, I have said myself that there may be a time, once the gathering occurs, where there is a period of two or three or four or five, six years, however long it will be, when we are building villages and building the temple and ultimately then building Jerusalem, as Daniel says that there may be opportunity for marriage, and I'm not saying there would not be. Uh, I'm not countering that. There is always that possibility. That being said, and that may occur, I do not know, we need to be sure that now we are focusing on God and doing what we ought to be doing rather than worrying about those things and being discouraged and self-centered about it, we should be busy serving and giving and loving others rather than worrying about our status. Everybody from young to old here can be frustrated. They can feel alone. And you can feel alone even in a marriage if things aren't what they ought to be in the marriage. So getting married is not always the total solution to your problems, even though you think it might be. 
and it boils down to some physical needs as well that are frustrations that people have, and they focus on those, rather than putting their focus on something else and thereby minimizing those things. <clears throat> Verse 34, there is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the eternal, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Now that's what you young ladies should be doing, is focusing on God and being holy in your body and in your mind. Not worrying about the physical things that we sometimes worry about. That she, uh, let's see, but that she, but she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So, it is harder in some ways. Now, let's understand this. It is harder in some ways for a married woman to focus on God with her whole heart than it is for a single girl. Now, you single girls think you have problems, and you do. You have frustrations and difficulties, and you have hopes and dreams. But you are free to, if you so choose, to serve God with your whole heart. Whereas you married ladies tend to, and should, give some of your attention to your husbands. But it also then prevents you from giving your entire attention to God, which is a blessing that single women have. Because you are to become like Christ. You are to give your heart and attention to Him now as your prospective husband, as a bride-to-be. And you are free from having a deal with a man at this point and can put your attention on your husband-to-be. And I know some of you try that. And you try to have that mindset, and that's a good thing. Hard to maintain at all times, I understand. But you have a freedom that the married women do not have. Now, you think you would rather be the other way. But try taking care of a man and putting your entire attention on God. Can't be done. So he's saying there are advantages in some ways to being single. There's news. I'm not getting a lot of smiles out of it, but there's news. That's what God has to say. And this I speak because I hate you, and I don't want to see you married. What, let's, no, verse 35. And this I speak for your own prophet. I'm speaking this that it might help you handle the situation that you are in and do it successfully in a way that will cause good things to come to you later on. In other words, we're not doing this for right now. We're here for the future. We're here for the future, not for the present and not for the moment. That's what he's saying. 
Americans are trained to live for the moment, and I must be giddily happy at every moment, otherwise I will be discouraged and depressed and mad and ready to kill myself. Or whatever. I say this for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is good, and that you may attend upon the eternal without distraction. Now, I know the argument that will come up on that is, yeah, but it's distracting to be single and frustrated and unhappy and, and uh, discouraged and all those things. Yes, that is the natural human reaction to those things which are natural to be that God made to be good. I understand that, and so did Paul. But he also understood that as this age comes to an end, we're in a very distressing time and putting God first, whether we're male or female, married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, happy or sorrowful, is the key. Putting God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added in his time, in his way. Verse 36, But if any man think that he be saved, behaves himself uncomely toward his virgin, virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and needs so require, let him do what he will. He sins not, let them marry. He says it isn't the best, but if they can't handle things, then let them marry. Nevertheless, he adds, in spite of this, nevertheless, he that stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, can control his urges, his desires, his physical needs, emotional needs, and has so de decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. He does better if he's able to remain unmarried and contain himself. So then he that gives her in marriage does well, but he that does, gives her not in marriage does better. So it's not all bad to get married under these circumstances, but if you don't, you're going to be better off for it. That's what he's saying. Verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the eternal. So this chapter is making an exception and says God will not keep you bound to someone who will not let you serve God in peace, but at the same time, you better not marry outside. That's why the church has always said don't date outside the church because dating leads to emotional closeness, which leads to marriage. And we are not to marry outside the church for any reason. People do it sometimes, and it later comes back to haunt them. I've seen it happen many, many times over the years in the church where somebody says, oh, we can, we, we've talked about it, and we can get along, and things will be okay if I marry outside the church. And they may not be too interested in even being part of the church at that time. But later on in life, when that interest is kindled and they which were raised right turn back to God, they find themselves in a mess. And trying to obey God when you're living with someone who will not obey God is not a picnic at any time in any way. 
And I've seen many of those marriages fail, and I've seen others who are still in them, and the marriages are, in that sense, a failure because they have trouble that is never far away, always is there, and surfaces so very easily. So he's laying it down here. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. So he's saying you may not agree with his judgment, but he said I do have the Spirit of God, and truly God included it in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7 is not necessarily a chapter that widowed or divorced or single people like, but it is a direction God gives that is important. Why are we frustrated? We have our minds on our own wants, our own needs, our own emotions, our own frustrations rather than on giving and serving and helping others and focusing on that. And therefore, when we have our minds on ourselves, we will be frustrated. I mean, really. All of us have many lacks, do we not? And every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us has problems. Every one of us has attitudes. Every one of us has difficulties. And we as human beings are deceitful and desperately wicked and selfish, self-centered by nature. And when we center on ourselves, we are centering on something that isn't really very pretty. So if you center on yourself and it's not very pretty, you're not going to be very happy. Bottom line. So we need to be busy not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing, serving and giving and helping others, and not letting ourselves think about constantly what it is that we are frustrated about and want, or think we want. It's better to get on with the positive rather than focusing on the negative. We are here to become the bride of Christ. We are here to be the wife and the mother of Christ and of his children. And we need to make that our focus, married or unmarried. And all of us will be happier, married or unmarried, if we are able to focus on the future, not on our present circumstance. Just being human is not a good circumstance. It's not. It is a trial period. It's boot camp. It's a life filled with all kinds of problems and the works of the flesh. All kinds of disappointments, frustrations. You know, a lot of people who think, boy, if I just get married, I'll have a happy marriage and live happily ever after. You know, that's a very rare instance, very rare occurrence. People who live together in marriage more frequently than not have problems. You think it's trouble, you think you have trouble living with yourself, try living with someone else. That is not easy. I don't care how much you think you love each other, and maybe you do. 
But even people who really love each other are still very human and self-centered and spoiled and rotten by the society and the culture and just by the very fact that we are human. What are natural emotions to human beings? Discouragement, frustration, self-centeredness, wishing we had things we don't have. What is the world? They're, they're all worried because they don't have enough of the right kind of sex. They're all worried because they don't have enough of the right kind of money. They don't have all the things they want. And they think that if they just could get a great job and be able to buy anything they wanted, they'd be happy. And they're so focused on that, thinking money will make them happy, that they ruin their health seeking wealth. And then they're miserable and unhappy because they feel lousy and they're sick and degenerate and diseased. And then they spend all that money they ruin their health getting trying to get their health back. It's a vicious catch-22. Human beings, of all things on the earth, are the most miserable. And if there is no hope and a resurrection and forever and eternity as the bride and the wife of Christ, then we, of all men on earth, are the most miserable. At least they get to indulge in the things that their bodies and minds request of them. We are deprived of that by trying to do what God says is best for us in spite of our desires and wants and needs. And if there isn't a future for us, then that in itself is a frustration, and we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and we might as well have had as much fun as we can while we're here on the earth. But I believe differently. I believe there is a resurrection. I believe there is a time coming when if we obey God, we will not have any tears, any misfortune, any hurt, any pain, any emotional difficulty, but we will have a marriage to the Lamb, to the best husband that could possibly be, and we will live happily ever after. You cannot achieve that on this earth. Marriage is a physical thing, and it breaks down as we get older because we become less physically able to do anything, eat, drink, or be married, and then we die, and it's over. Happily ever after is a fairy tale in the human existence. If you marry, you will have troubles, trials, and tumult. You will have troubles adjusting. You've been living alone for 30, 40, 50 years and get married, you will be surprised at how independent you have become and how little you will wish to adapt your life to someone else. It will not be easy. And if you're young and immature and think you have all the answers, go ahead and get married and see if I don't know what I'm talking about. We're here not for the present, we're here 
for the future. God has given us that glorious opportunity. Yes, there is a happily ever after, but it's not on this earth, and it's not with a physical mate. Guaranteed. You will have trouble in this life. That's what Paul is trying to get across. Now, his advice here is specifically for us right now. Now, it is applied to some degree, I suppose, throughout history, but God knew that there was about 2,000 years after Christ would be here in which Christ would not return. So he ordained that people would go ahead and live and marry and have children and that those marriages would reflect the kingdom of God and Christ in the church. That is the natural state, and it's what teaches us about Christ in the church. But now we find ourselves at the very end. And for you who are unmarried at this time and single, it is a difficult time, and I'm not trying to minimize that. I know that, and I know your natural desires. But it's just about as difficult for those who are married. Because each and every one of us, single or married, struggles in his relationship with God. Struggles to pray. Struggles to study. Study or has difficulty meditating on the things of God rather than on the things about marriage or being unmarried. It is so easy for us to focus on the physical instead of the spiritual. And that's what causes us trouble. It is through much tribulation, through much difficulty, that we enter the kingdom of God, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he will deliver us from them all. Psalm 34, 19. Put God first. Married or unmarried. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Happy or sad. Put God first, and your life will get better. That's all there is to it. Don't focus on, and maybe I've been a part of that, don't focus on, well, when the remnant gets here, we'll have many to choose from, there'll be lots of marriages. Maybe there will. But just focusing on that, although it might give you a little hope in the physical things, is not the answer. The answer is seek God with your whole heart, and if some of those things become available, and there's time for it, fine, well and good, and you might be blessed in that way. But don't be counting on it, because then you lose focus on God and the future and the job we have at hand. Put God first in your life, whoever you are, and you will be better off for it, and you will be blessed for it. If you put yourself first, you're going to continue to have problems and difficulties. Well, I've spoken for an over an hour, and even though we didn't have a sermonette because the sermonette man got called out, uh, I think an hour or a little over is enough anyway, and I didn't intend really to go to 1 Corinthians 7 as the focus of this sermon, but it just hit me that maybe it was time to do this because of some of our frustrations and difficulties, so that's, I prayed God would lead it where it needed to go, and maybe this is where it needed to go. 
I don't want to discourage any of you by the things I've said today because I've only read the words of God. But if you want happiness and peace and contentment at all in this life, then putting God first is going to be the best answer. Very soon now, this nation is going to go into captivity. And a third will die of famine and pestilence. One third will die by the sword in war. And one third will be taken into slavery. And most of them will die there. So that about 90% of the present population of this country are going to die in the next few years in a very, very horrible way. If we focus on God and put our attention there, perhaps we can, through His mercy, be accounted worthy to escape these things, to be a part of His end-time work, and ultimately be safe from the things that are about to happen. Now, we're not here to save our own hides. We're here to help each other. We're here to be a light to the world, not be a part of the world. We're to become a part of what Christ is doing. Now, what he is doing is preparing his bride and getting a wife ready and using us as possibilities for those roles and to do the end-time work. Now, if we, as a potential bride, can help him now with the job he has set himself to do, and is about to rise and get on with, then we become what? A major candidate to be in that 144,000 set aside to be the wife of Christ. If we'll assist him now, he's going to be very happy to let us assist him later when things are better. And that should be our main focus. He has a work to do. He's called us to help do it. So let's get busy doing what he wants done, preparing ourselves spiritually, helping each other prepare spiritually, and then as the opportunity arises, build villages, build temple, build Jerusalem, whatever he has for the church to do, we need to be preparing ourselves to get done. And that's a tall order focusing on self and my needs and my hopes and my desperations right now is a wrong focus and will just lead us to more frustration, misery, and discouragement. It is without vision that we perish. With vision of what is to come and what the job is to do today, we can be happier and more content even in a time of distress and trouble. Paul said these things, I'm only repeating them to us, and I do believe he had the Spirit of God and the things he wrote are for our profit, and if we will heed, we will be better off. Okay?